Welcome, guys. Thanks for joining us for the first episode of Beyond the Sideline. Today with us, we've got Angelo and Yako, and our topic we're going to cover off, hopefully with a good conversation and a few little gags along the way, is picking your club as a player coach. And then we'll take a quick look at it from a boardroom level. Angelo, say good day to the crew. Hey, guys. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, looking forward to our first conversation about all this stuff. And yeah. Diaco? Yes, guys, uh, it's uh, very exciting to be the first episode of uh, Beyond the Sideline. Uh, looking forward to um, touching on some really key topics throughout the future episodes. Can't wait. Excellent. Superb. Look, hey, it's it's been a long time in the making and it's finally here and happy days. What a, what a time to uh, add a little bit to, to the guys we work with, the coaches in our community. So, choosing a club. Do you guys want to give us a little bit of a rundown on how you chose your clubs and stepped up through your coaching career? And then we'll try and pick it apart in a bit of a, a conversation. Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, a lot of my coaching has been through stepping stones from what my point of view. I've gone from one club to another based on different experiences, you know, working through the state leagues into, you know, the MPL level into a, state team level, back into club level, finding different challenges along the way. Um, I felt like I've gone, I've kind of done the reverse as a normal coach. Most coaches go from the young age groups into the older ones where I started in the older ones, developing into a more of a youth development coach. So, you know, at different clubs, I've found different challenges where I wanted to be at at the time. And now I know where I should be at as a coach after 12, 13 years. Nice. And yourself, Diaco? Yeah, it's a very, actually, it's a very interesting one because um, uh, at the beginning, of course, I never thought about like how it's going to go and it went quite naturally. And uh, at the time, I was in Iran and was lucky to be working as a translator and get to know the, the, the dynamics of uh, like elite level and professional level. Uh, that was the time where I wasn't even deciding to become a coach. Um, and uh, once I did become a coach, of course, I started with the community. And uh, the more I went into it, the more I realized that actually the club culture really matters and um, how you choosing your club, it, it really uh, does determine um, where you're heading with the club based on your vision and philosophy, of course. But it's been quite an interesting journey. Um, I would say at the beginning, it started naturally, but then uh, I am in a point where I can see that, you know, okay, uh, you really need to have uh, a good idea of the organizational culture, um, whether it's in NPL or community. Actually, uh, one thing is like the level level as in the standard, and the other thing is actually um, the uh, the organizational aspect of it. You can be a, like a, easily an association club, but then you have a very good organizational structure uh, in a community level. You can be an NPL club or higher. And still, organization is highly lacking, and I think we all, we all can relate to that in a way. I think this is interesting. You know, there's two very contrasting approaches in terms of building a coaching career and picking your club. And you know, going back to mine, I think I'm a lot close to what Ange Angelo did, and that it's it's very, I guess, natural to go that way, isn't it? To find yeah. somewhere that either just appeals with you as as a good mentor and or, or or stepping stone up 
but having an ambition of where you want to go and and i'll you know i'll unashamedly say that i chose names <laughs> i went to clubs that i thought were going to give the best opportunity to enhance my brand as a coach but equally it was about finding a good mentor as well and fortunately in in the, in the early years of coaching there were some really great mentors that helped on that journey and i think looking back one of the things that you, you could think about and i think it's certainly come out in the last few few years is about this idea of having a premeditated plan and you know all three of us have done something very natural but you know is there a better way of doing it is it is there a better way that we can help the next generation of coaches really build their career with precision do you guys think that that's something that we should be looking at yeah i mean i personally agree with that um you know having started in the whole natural stepping stone whatever feels natural to you approach i'm at the stage now where i think where the arco is um and finding the right club for me finding the right culture finding the right role within the club finding somewhere where you feel valued um and basically just fits into where I want to be because those first 12 years as a coach was always, I want more experience. I want to learn more. I want to like you finding the right mentors, find the right clubs to be at. Now it's where can I provide value? Where can the club help me progress where I want to progress to, whether it's progressing in to do better and more in that level, as opposed to necessarily being in the top academies and mm. in Europe, I just want to do better in where I am now at my level. You know what I mean? So I don't want a stepping stone. I just want a place to be able to demonstrate and help the maximum number of people as possible. You know, so, uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's interesting you say that because now what you're alluding to is a process, isn't it? And I guess there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of environments where coaches at the mercy, the club holds, holds all the cards. And I guess there's this idea of, you know, the club wants a certain coach, you are a certain coach, but then equally you are a certain coach and you also want to be a certain coach. And it's like, it's about trying to find the coach you want to be is the, is the coach that the club wants and what's the gap in between and being able to drive the development to meet those two different objectives, those two different points and being able to meet. So Diaco, what's, what's your take on being able to, preemptively close those gaps in betweens of what the club wants as a coach and what you want as a coach and making those two sort of come together yes i mean look, it's, it's really an interesting one because i mean one of the reasons as coaches we do uh take a job on is that we, we are keen to take challenge on i think and, and every challenge is a learning so i guess i guess that's that's a key motivation for us as coaches um but then sometimes, like, you know, to what extent, like, what, what are we talking about in terms of challenge? Like, even, even if you're taking a challenge on, you need certain supports. Like, say, for example, um, as a coach or a manager, you would like to say, um, this is the kind of culture that I'm hoping that I, uh, I get out of my players. Like, this is the certain standards that I'm looking at, you know. Uh, but you, you, you see that um, the support is not there, literally is not there. So um, what can you do? You can... That kind of challenge, I think, is, is a little bit like going nowhere. Like, I mean, like, you can, you can just go with it, but then, uh, you know, like, it, it comes down to the very basic saying that, you know, either, uh, either you know, compromise or change it, you know, like, so if you can compromise, then it's going to be really um, not you and your visions the way that you hoping for it. And a lot of times it's not because, you know, uh, life is not perfect. But then uh, on the other side, um, 
to what extent you can change things and look into the environment. Um, I mean, uh, one of the things I think we've been like, you know, going through a lot as coaches is that even though like we've been moving around between between clubs, sometimes you see like six, seven NPL clubs are still having the same similar culture. It's just the whole environment is a little bit like that sometimes, you know, like where so and, and like why like that? I mean, of course, you know, the the organizational culture that supports the coach is not necessarily there. It's just basically we want to get results, but we haven't worked out how um, or what support the coach needs in order to do what they need to do. So then obviously to both of you, with culture, obviously there'll be some metrics or some measures of culture. And then you what you want to achieve as a coach. So how do, how do you think you create a process that lets you bridge those two things? So what the club wants and what the club wants, but doesn't know what it wants and what you want as a coach, how do you define that to then be able to use that, use that, use that process of defining and, and narrowing down your possibilities to find the club that you would target? I guess, I mean, as a process, I guess you talk to people first. You talk to the key people in charge, especially talk to the technical director, if the club has one, um, as opposed to just a head coach with the, uh, with the role. Mm-hmm. Um, and you find out what the club is like. You talk about um, what the role could be, what, what the process are like. And you, at the end of the day, it's all about the contract, right? And I know many of us have gone through clubs without a single contract, you know, I've only signed about three contracts out of my six, seven clubs. Other times they just turn up and they give you some balls and then, you know, and then you, you turn up and start training. Um, other clubs, they have it down in writing what your strict roles are, responsibilities and what, who you report to. Sure. You know, and it's, if you can speak to the right people, understand what they want. And if that, if that suits what you want, or if they're able to change to where you want to be at, then if that's all contracted, it's all written down on paper, you're able to then follow that process and you're able to go, yes, I agree or I don't agree, then you move towards that club. If you do, if you like it, if you don't, then you find another club where you're trying to change their mind. Um, so what you're really talking about is you're talking about a, a structural idea, aren't you? An environment where you're talking about it's the environment around the club, so the standards, the values. Yeah ethics the 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 attitudes of the club but then also the structure is what's in place to how do they create the operational environment of the club so what happens or what do you think about if you start looking at dimensions such as um playing style does does their playing style match your playing style as a coach what sort of things would you need to consider to assess playing style equally on the other hand would you look at the bigger picture and and this is where language can obviously get a bit complex and look at uh, or complicated and, and think of that idea of complex systems where you're looking at clubs that have had a record for developing certain environment a uh, certain players certain coaches they've developed a reputation for that and there's a certain quality so therefore if you're looking for someone like who's strong at developing coaches or developing a certain sort of player and you want to be involved in that you're looking at that process process so i'll give you a few examples in a minute but what, what do you guys think about that sort of approach as well? Yeah, I mean, for me, I agree, I agree with that. That's, that's always part of it. I mean, as a coach, my personal process was if a club wanted me 
and I knew them as reputationally as a club that didn't play the way I wanted to play, then I wouldn't go anywhere near them. Okay. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't speak to them. So for, for that, what, what sort of things are you looking at in their style? Oh, of play? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of style of play, it's obviously I would have sometimes watched them and realized, well, they play too direct for me. They are a win by all, um, you know, just, just all they're looking to do is win. They don't want to develop the individual player. I wouldn't mind that in, in senior football when they're trying to win and that's what the process was. What's That's what the focus is. But when you see that in a youth space and all you have is coaches on the sideline is telling them to boot it, parents telling them to boot it, um, it just tells you what their expectations are, which is, for me, none. It tells you that they just want to win. They don't care about what the players are like. You know, having coached in boy in the boys' space as well previously, I've seen club uh, teams in the under-15s age group defending like it's a World Cup final. You know, they sit in front of that box and they don't try to play football and then they score a dodgy uh, from a dodgy corner and then they sit in the box again. And yeah. all I've got is my team trying to play through two lines of four and two plays in front of them just hanging out in front of that box. Sure. And my play is trying to learn how to beat that kind of a play, you know? So would you then go and look at data? Would you go and look at how a team played? And maybe if you're looking in the youth space, you've got to derive that from a senior space. But would you be looking at, say, entries into final thirds? Would you be looking at pass completion rate? Would you be looking at possession? Would you be looking at, our physical effort so miles run or high speed runs yeah. those sorts of data to see if that's a match to your playing style therefore coaching style before you went into that environment yeah i mean if if those data was available and it, and that was relevant to the uh level that i wanted to be at so if it was a first grade npl men's or women's if that data was available then you'd look in that look into that um and go well is that the right type of way I want to want I want to go to I mean Tiago probably has more experience in that data driven um, space than I have as well so I mean I'm in youth space I don't they don't record that kind of stuff you know? well, <laughs> or share I mean, it there's obviously a growing trend towards that in the game yeah. as there is so there's a possibility that, that now starts to become a realistic thing so Tiago I'll get your thoughts on that but also what I want you to think about so recently there's a there's an article for Sydney United uh and they have created had a bit of a reputation for fostering a certain development of coach now there's and there's a there's a long name of those of those individuals and those and and during that period there has been a constant set of people at the club in a certain environment so obviously if you're thinking about this that's part of the picture that you want to consider is that environment going to be conducive to the way i want to develop as a coach and the environment i want to coach in what do you sort of say to both those two statements, picking up on that and what Angelo also just covered off? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, like, sorry, with, with the statements, can you just say it again? Because I missed the first one. Yeah, sure. So obviously using data to pick a club, matching it to your playing style, and then also being able to look beyond that and look at, say, I'll say the meta state of a club at a high level, those things that make the club what they are, but it's based on key elements, individuals, practices, or histories, or something like that. Definitely, actually, it's quite interesting, and because um, uh, you know, um, you'll be surprised. Like on a national level, when I was working with those like levels, and, and I was just obviously I was just like acting as a translator at the time. But then I looked at some some national teams at that time that didn't have it. I mean, there's two things that you got to look into. One thing that 
where we are trying to explore. And the other thing is how fast the environment is rapidly changing. Like the culture is changing. We're trying to catch up with the culture that matches and suits your level and what you're hoping to get. But then in the meantime, the whole football environment is changing. I mean, I, I, I uh, looked into an article this morning. Actually, it was, it was for this morning. Uh, I'll, I'll go through it later on. It was a comment from Gabriel Batistuta. And he was just recently saying that, you know, how the game has so much changed compared to the time that he was playing. And, and uh, actually, he made an interesting comment. I might actually read this for you guys. find it fascinating. Because, like, uh, first, yeah, if, if you really want to become a pro footballer, now in this case, could apply to coaches as well in a different level. But uh, first, you have to think about why you want to play. If, you are, if you're going to be Cristiano or Messi, I advise you to stop and look another path. Admittedly, uh, they appear on the front pages, but in order to do so, it takes a lot of work. And he's comparing it to his time where it was nothing like it. And the same is for coaches, I believe. You know, I mean, look, look at look at Italy national team this year. There's no one manager, there are four managers standing on the sideline. I mean, like they all like, of course, Roberto Mancini is the key coach, but then the head coach, but then you've got on the same level, Gianluca Viali. Um, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Chico Ivani, and these are these are all like national players. And um, there's another one that's on the tip of my tongue, I can't remember. But four coaches on the same level is standing on a sideline, and that's the rapid change of the environment between 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 the outfield. But I reckon um, uh, back to what Andrew was saying as well. Um, it will, if the club has those data available, that's a good sign to start with anyway. Like, you know, because that, that means they're collecting the data, they're caring about getting the data. And that's part of the organizational culture that they have. Like I said, one thing is the organizational culture that really matters. And then the other thing, once you have that, then of course you can think, okay, there is a good available vehicle for me to lift the team to the to the standard that I'm thinking. Why? Because the organization is organizational culture that I'm expecting is in place. Um, so I would say that's part of the culture. And then the other part is, and I would love to know actually your views on that too, Gus, uh, to see what you think about that, because obviously you've had your own experience as well. But I just want to see like, you know, um, uh, let's say for example, um, I don't know, like uh, I, I look back to, um, I'm going to come back to this later on, but I look back to like, you know, one of the national teams that they asked me to just like, you know, organize their camp. And I remember that I just received this email that, you know, they asked me to organize the camp. And of course, there were other side politics involved that I didn't know what was going on. But then I thought, okay, do you have a checklist for me? What does the head coach want? And then they put me in contact with the head coach. And the head coach was not giving a lot of information out. He just, the only thing that he, specific, sorry, he specified was he wants a very quiet private environment. He doesn't want synthetic field and he wants he wants a certain, um, I don't know, with, with certain standards. And, but he didn't mention much to be honest in that email. And actually he got annoyed when I was asking for more information. And then I ended up finding the checklist for uh, Barcelona and, 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 and adopt that checklist and uh, later you done quite well but for me it was interesting that they didn't have a checklist in place that's that's fascinating that you you say that that developing a checklist i think that's that's a valuable tool and it almost sounds like 
that trying to pull this all together that there is like obviously again complex environment many factors fit in but almost being able to do a, a SWOT analysis so looking at the strengths of both yourself the club weaknesses op- opportunity and threats helps you pull that together and that creates a little bit of a checklist but it also then means you can get a feeling for what the history is what the environment is what those other dimensions are because that will come out whether there's these key individuals whether there's these key histories um key playing style metrics that will come out in what the opportunities and what the threats are because that will instinctively show where you are as a coach first where you want to go first where the club is versus where the club wants to go and hopefully that can give you a little bit of a, an idea of how those all marry up and whether that's something that can work. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. But how, how is your experience on that whole uh, arena? I mean, from my experience, um, and I'll, I'll sort of sum this up before we take a quick break for part two. I think, look, I haven't really been that premeditated. I, I was a bit hit and miss. And like I said, at, at, at the top, it was about following a certain name and a certain reputation of individual. Um, I think as I've come to think about it, I've gone for clubs that are a lot more matching playing styles as, as, a, as a first one. Do, do they play the way I want to play the game? And do those individuals within the team that I'm looking at have the capacity to play that way? And is there scope for me to build an environment around that club? I It's probably only recently that I've started to think about it this deeply and think about it in terms of the next moves that I'm going to make as a coach. Even when I was coaching in Europe, it was more about, A, is there an opportunity? How, how close is that geographically? And what is their style of play? And it was really only through those experiences that I've picked up and gone, okay, maybe we need to think about this a bit more deeply, a bit more systematically. And is there more of an intelligent way to use data more than what players do and and try and be a bit more calculated. So that was sort of the space that I came from. All right, gents, shall we have a quick break and then we'll come back off and cover the players and the board side of things. Welcome back for part two. That was an interesting co- uh, conversation around coaching. Probably not one that's nearly long enough and, we'll, and, and it's probably a conversation that's going to come back a couple of times. The other side of obviously picking your club as a coach is also picking your, your side as a, your team as a player, but then also getting the right players as a coach in the right club. Obviously, my experience comes from the three-point game, uh, both in Australia and abroad, Diaco is much the same. And then Angelo's call, uh, strength is around the youth space. So trying to find the right players for the right club, and we'll speak as coaches for players rather than players for players. What do you think is, is, a, is, is, the, is the smart way, the intelligent way, the process-driven way where players can objectively find a club that fits them or coaches finding a player for a, a, a club for the players? Oh, I guess in the, in the youth space um, for coaches finding the right players, it's, it's completely different to what it would be for players trying to find a club for them. 
Um, but realistically, as a coach, you're looking for players who a want to work as hard as you do, right? Um, as a as an elite type coach, you want to push players, and you want players who want to be pushed. You know, you want to avoid the players that that have issues. Um, you know, in terms of behavioral issues, um, you want to avoid players who potentially have bad parents that don't that don't agree with with their coaches in the past, right? You want to avoid them at the very beginning. And I've done that in the recent uh, history. So, you know, that, that's coming back to bite me as well <laughs> right now. That's, that's an interesting point. So what you're talking about, you got you got a couple of things going there from what yeah. I'm saying. And correct me if, that, if, I, if we need to dive down is, yeah. so there's a reflective part of that. But then within that, you've got a quantitative and a qualitative. So the qualitative stuff is all the behavioral fit, hard work, where your quantitative stuff is what they can actually do with the ball. Yeah. But the reflective process is them looking back on, on clubs that they've been in, but also a coach looking back and going, you know, this type of player, what do I expect? What do I need? What are they like? Is that is that a fair sort of summary of what you've just said? Yeah, look, it's it is. It's uh it's finding the it's them finding out what works and you as a coach going, well, I need a player that can do this in my team. Um yes. for example, if you had the previous year you had the same team and you've gone up with them and you realize you can't score goals, then you're looking for someone who can score goals. So, okay, so excellent, excellent. I think the that this this statement is something we should really get into. So you're saying that when you're looking for this, that's a football quality. So that yeah. football quality has to be expressed in some sort of language. And again, this can relate to what you look for as a coach, but as a player, you're looking for, say, for a goal scorer. So if you're looking for a goal scorer, say what sort of things football metric wise are you going to be looking for? Okay. So I guess in, if you look at, yeah. So the actions are, if you get the, if you can get stats or you can just watch the videos of them play or see them in person, yeah. you look at the players who, who make intelligent runs, the ones who get into the box at the right times, yeah. often the ones who can who can shoot, technically who can actually shoot, those who are brave enough to do what you need to, especially as a nine, who's good enough technically to hold the ball up, sure. intelligent enough to make those um, decisions as opposed to turning and running behind every single time or someone who always receives it at feet. You know, so you you're want talking to... about someone who can you know shoot from left and right foot, feet, yeah. physically able to make the movements, yeah. they're able to come to the ball, they're able to rotate in and out of space, create yes. space. Yeah, okay, all right. So that's interesting. So what we're so what you're saying is you've taken a, a verbal description of what you want and you've sort of been able to football language it and then you've given some dimensions, which then means as you said, you can then pick up the data. Yeah. So then that's one half of it. So then Diaco, do you think you can change that to a qualitative process as well? So, you know, if a player says, you know, I just want to have, I just want to have fun or I want to, I want to be able to have a bit more freedom in my play. How do you get that to a, to a, to a sort of a, a phrase or a statement that actually means something in terms of football speak and, and a qualitative variable that we can use? Actually, that's a very good spot-on question. Uh, honestly, I think I think we're going to be very careful with uh, quality versus quantity. I mean, uh, quantity data. Use the qualitative and quantitative, and not quality versus quality type questions. It's just looking at two different uh, that's what I mean. yeah, data. So yeah, qualitative, qualitative data. Um, it's uh, let's just start with quantity. And, and what I mean by be careful, I mean like this is a great conversation because um, a lot of times we fall into one side without, and, and, and we got so deep into it that we, we, we uh, unintentionally neglect the other side. So, um, say, especially with 
quantitative data for a coach is a like is, is a great tool because you can measure a lot of things, right? Um, but you gotta you gotta look at like say for example uh, KPIs and targets, right? So you, you for every KPI you've got a target. But you gotta look at it. It's a KPI. It's it's just an indicator. It's just to tell you what what it is and what's what is not. Say for example, but it's. It's not an invitation to judgment of say okay because of this then that that's the situation and because of that it's just an indicator you don't know what it uh, say for example like Andrew's saying a player uh, I don't know just just around KPI say for example how many how many um, uh, shots on the uh, on the goal we had like in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a matter of five minutes and how many of them went in yeah, like he actually scored he or she actually scored. Um, okay, well, then uh, for some reason the target is low, but we don't know what's the situation. It's not like you know, a lot of times, like you can see, like uh, coaches like would make a conclusion, say, okay, well, maybe the player is not talented enough, and that's it. Whereas this is just an indicator, we don't know what's going on. But I would relate it more to the life cycle of management. So, say, for example, um, whatever you want to do with, with management now, in this case, managing, managing football man as, as a coach. Uh, plan action evaluation you want to plan your, your organization make sure everything's in place and then you deliver your session and then at the end you evaluate now the planning especially if you're new to the environment as a coach there's a lot of observations and mentioned earlier like you know you, you want to really understand the environment you really want to understand the players you really want to understand the coaches uh, above and beyond uh, you know uh, of your heart where, where you're at in that hierarchy and so I guess, I guess with all of that understanding, you would have your own certain KPIs uh, sure. that pro produce those quantitative data and enhance those quantitative data. And the club has their own, and then you can, you can mix and match them and look at it like from your perspective. But then um, I guess once you're in the delivery mode, uh, running your session, I think it's, it's a great chance to spend some time on quality. So so bearing in mind what you said and KPI is a really interesting point and that's I'll come back to that how how does that actually help a player assess that information assess, assess those variables to then determine if that club is right and equally a coach that that player is right for that club so the same idea but two sides to the same question I guess you'd say with the KPIs uh, with the with the qualitative and quantitative variables. So obviously with Ange, we're talking about the football language. And as a coach, you know, we know that if a player can do those things, that's something we want to look at. That's our measure of whether they're successful. A player will ultimately want to go to a club and go, look, I can do these things. Does the club let me do those things? So that's a comparative type analysis based on just football metrics in its own right. But of but you've said that K, that with KPIs and KPIs can be really valuable because they can give you a way of benchmarking yes. performance. So you can benchmark that in terms of will that club let me do what I want it to do? How consistently can I do it? Or how well am I doing what I said I was going to do in that club environment? And if that if they're all high, that's you know as a player and 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 both as a coach that that bodes very well. But when you're talking about the soft things, so you know. The, being happy, being able to have the freedom to play as you as you need, um, that being able to build or fit into the culture, that sort of thing. How do you how do you try and measure that? How do you get a read 
of those factors if you're a player entering into a coaching environment or a coach and um, looking to bring a player into your environment? Sure. I mean, look, uh, there's no, there's definitely no one answer. It's not an easy one. Sometimes you need to spend a lot of time to get to know the players, relate on a personal level. We're talking about quality team. And that's one of the key reasons that coaches highly rely on quantitative data because it accelerates the process of understanding the environment of the team. But this is something that uh, comes with time. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, football uh, psychology is highly important role in football and I guess no matter how far you go with your strategies and how far the players go with their fitness in the end that psychology is what makes the game interesting because um, oh, 100%. Uh, and, and I guess that's where it comes to it and we, we need to really understand the team and that comes with time as you spend time with your players relate to them and, and um, uh, I guess in a first glance you've got to really rely on quantitative data because you don't know much about it, or you can only observe us. Uh, you can only observe so much, you know. But, but then, as you go further, um, you probably can get some gathering of your own quality data. Yeah. So you're sort of saying that it's, and what I'm taking is it's an objective process initially, moving to the subjective, and the only way to really do that is to build well experience, build relationships, but. I guess one way of doing it is, and, and this whole thing is a comparative analysis. It's about looking at what you want versus what you have and, and then trying to match the two. So, I mean, back, back to you, Ange. In saying this, you, if you were to, as a player, sit down and go and try and get a single word, value or attitude, so something like um, freedom, something like trust, something like respect hmm. in your environment, and then you were to sit down and, co and and talk to the coaches, talk to a club to make sure your definitions of those two of those two labels, those two things are the same. Do you think that then starts to give you more confidence in your ability to then be able to fit Make into that environment or move into that environment? Yeah, look, I mean, I've over the you know the lockdown period when we were trying to sign our players, there was a lot of opportunities to speak to players and trying to bring them into your club and a lot of that was trying to figure out if you were able to offer a player what they were looking for. Mm -hmm. you know, I had players that used to be at our club that moved to an NPL one club. And so I was trying to interesting, just diving in on that. And I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah. When you say they know what they're looking for, do those players have words around that? Can they adequately describe that in a way that's usable? Yeah. I mean, they were all that the main thing for them was the challenge and to improve and to prove themselves and, because their main aim was to become a Matilda, right? Oh. And for them, it was playing in NPL one. Yeah. So from my perspective, I was trying to show them that how about you play two age groups up in NPL two? Because the environment here is going to be more challenging that you can step up into NPL one. Yeah. I gave him um, examples of NPL two players at you know 16, 17, 18 playing first grade and then being picked up by A League women's clubs because they were shining in their own environment. Okay. And it was about, yeah. yeah. So there's different evidence for that. So then Diaco, can you take these, these sort of ideas that we're talking about and being able to language your football style, what you want as a player in football terms, and then also what you want in terms of an environment, the qualitative aspects of your game and, and use that as a process for trialing. So basically having a more targeted approach to your trialing mechanisms. 
definitely. I guess it's a, it's a way that that we can definitely approach it. I mean, um, well, the qualitative uh, data that you you gain over the time, it's like going to help you to um, shape your team based on it, uh, as well as the quantitative data, of course. But then with the quantitative data at the very beginning, you can also make certain judgments in terms of like you know, um, okay, where your team's at at the moment. And uh, it's it's a great way to measure it uh, straight away. Mm. In the quality data that you, it comes to you as, as you go further, uh, it just I guess it's something that you know you gotta you gotta go um, as as um, the team shapes and progresses. You know, um, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of things about that. You know, it's 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 quite an interesting uh, topic actually because I, when I think about it, you know, for example, uh, we earlier we were talking about the organizational culture, and I think. Uh, the quantitative data really is easy to grasp if you've got a good organization in place, and that's it. But then uh, on um, qualitative data, it's like purely like you know based on individuals' behavior. And then one of the, for example, most challenging environments that I've been in with with supervising uh, uh, communities report and uh, and youth level, you know, was the issue of motivations. Say, for example, uh, there are performing players. But then there are different level of motivation across the team, mm. and how do you tackle that? And I, I, and I want to know both your answers on that. I mean, like it's, it's an interesting one because, say for example, you do have a squad of um, twenty-five players, um, girls, boys. I mean, like they're of course different, but differences. But then uh, I want you to look at it from the perspective of motivation. Um, the talent is there. They can they can do so much, but then there's there's this massive motivational gap. There are some that are highly motivated, but they can potentially be harmful to the ones that they're not too motivated. And then the the the, the ones that they lack in motivation, um, they just you know that if they are motivated, they they will be a great uh, addition to a team. Uh, I would love to know what you guys think about this. <clears throat> Look, I think I think that's an interesting concept, and I think if you're a player coming in trying to select an environment, that's something that you could sort of feel very quickly because that comes down to the work rate, the effort of people within that team. I think from a coaching perspective, that's very much a cultural question, a cultural issue, and that's I think that's something that that we need a lot more time to pick apart. But I think that's where you have to do that look with look within. And then and try and address whatever the mismatch is. I mean, mismatches ultimately will lead to divisions in in teams. So trying to work through that sort of thing, you know that that that's not a uh, that's a that's not an easy answer, is it really? <laughs> so I know that's not much of an answer, but I think that's one we'll have to uh, park in the back pocket and come to back to it at a bit, a bit at a bit more length. What's your take on that, Angelo? Yeah, look for me the. When, when we're trying to find when players are trying to find the club it's it is going to be about how they feel about it you know whether it's a young player or a senior player they're going to want to know first of all if they know someone in the team you know you look at a professional football yeah, a great quality you see, thing. yeah a lot of a lot of clubs start bringing players in like you look at west ham you know united for example they brought in uh, a second uh, czech republic player from um from uh Suchek to sufal because they, they know each other from the national team. And they brought a third one in, who's a younger player from the national team that played in that league. And it helps build that the culture for them because it's now comfortable for them to go, I've got a countryman in that team. You know, yeah. you see all the Brazilians playing for Real Madrid or, 
you know, anywhere else around the world, you see uh, pockets within that. Sometimes it's a division thing, like the old Arsenal team was a, a French team and then the English team, <laughs> right? Which is a good and bad thing, but... That's interesting you say that because that helps deal with some of what Diaco was talking about. And that, by creating those pockets, you can sort of manage a bit more of your motivation because that sort yeah. of bridges the divide. And I know from my coaching experience, when you've got factions within teams, it can be quite difficult to unify but once you do, and once you get that common ground yeah. and you can get a really powerful unit. And I think there's a lot to be said for that sort of idea. And it's good being able to put um, hard definitions around a lot of these things, but this, the delivering them that actually makes a difference. And I think once you identify, and as, as you, as you both rightly said, that means you're a long way of the way there. I think changing changing focus just a little bit or changing the slant on this is it is it possible to do this as a as an i'll say as a as a creative process and, and what i mean by that is can you as a coach as a player go i'm this sort of player or i'm looking for this sort of player and we'll we'll, we'll talk labels so a register or a deep line playmaker or or an inside forward and then start to filter out and go okay that sort of player will have these attributes football language football metrics qualitatively they'll have these sorts of attitudes these sorts of standards these sorts of beliefs these sorts of work ethics and is that then can you use that to select the player that you want to fit within your team and with your playing system or and therefore then you'll be able to sign someone or therefore do you think that that becomes too restrictive and that narrows what you're able to see and you look for something that you just can't find because you're so caught up on finding that thing, you miss everything else. Look, I think that's a great question. Um, it's a, you can, it, it, for me, player recruitment would be always going to be a flip of a coin because you can never get it 100% right. You can find a player that you think that's going to suit your style of play, that's going to replace the player you need to replace and that's going to fit exactly in. But then there's always a human element to that. You know, there's always a, can they fit in are they able to adapt to a new country competition, new team, new group of players, a new coaching style? Um, you know, but you know, for, for me, it's them going, let's find what we need. And that's for if you look at the recent successes of Liverpool and obviously Manchester City, those clubs are finding players that suit their style of play, the type of players that they want and need in the team, as opposed to you look at the football way isn't it? they're looking yeah. for people with the right attitude aren't they of the right character plus the, the ability because man city pick only technical players oh, they're yeah. not going to pick Brandon someone who can Thompson. just tackle they have to have a ruben diaz that can do both really well um and john stones but you look at manchester united for example where they have just gone let's pick a superstar name or let's pick a, a british-based player let's let's see the next best thing and then same thing with their coaches they just pick pick a name out of the hat and so it seems, same with uh, Everton, for example, they, they're struggling because they've overspent on so much money on plays that, you know, sometimes at one stage they had three tens in the same window. I mean, yeah, there's a lot to be said for that, isn't there? And, and it, <laughs> that can really make or break your recruitment. So coming back to obviously where we are, the NPL grassroots yeah. space, Diaco, how does, how does that concept translate into that space? Well, I guess, I guess, the, uh, like, like I said, it's definitely never going to get a perfect. That's <laughs> an art form, isn't it? So for example, you, you come to a lower level, like, you know, NPL space, um, it becomes even 
bigger of a challenge, I guess, because um, uh, you you just have to uh, look at how how um, large is the pond that you're in in terms of. Uh, and yeah, sometimes you got the luxury. You just you got to take what comes through the door, don't you? Absolutely, and, and that all comes down to that. And, you know, I guess look, um, and you see, this is the other thing that we learned throughout our, our career. That you know, you cannot like you know, approach it in a, like a really perfectionist kind of perspective. You really got to look at the bigger picture of what you want, and then let everything organically evolve. Mm. Uh, so, so the way, for example, I look at it is that. I would love to have a squad where um, uh, about 80% of the players are very much cautious of what they do. They, what we, we use the terminology coachable. Uh, so that means like as soon as you're trying to implement something, they, they, they're helping you implement it. They've got a very good understanding of it. And then you've got perhaps another 20, 30% that are supernaturals that you just, they might not exactly do what you want them to do, but then... Yeah. yeah. That's really curious what you've picked up there. And I think, yeah, it's trying to balance both players you can work with versus players that are a bit more difficult to work with for whatever reason. And I think that really comes down and as, as, a, as a leaving thought, I think that's where players probably should think about, you know, what sort of player they want to be or how do they want to play the game. And yeah. use that as a way to pre-select because then you're then getting players that you can work with both as a coach and a player is getting coached. They can work with and a club they can work with. So it's sort of, it's interesting how the two very much interconnect, which is, it's fascinating. What can I say? So on that, on that bombshell, yeah, just uh, we'll add that and then we'll go to a quick break. Yeah, okay? yeah go on, go on. Uh, I was just going to say, I was going to, we're going to, we'll, we'll pause and come. Yeah, I just wanted to add this. It, it's a, actually, it's a very interesting um case study that I can look at within the NPL clubs. I remember, uh, let's just give you an example, within Sydney uh, under New South Wales State League, I, I remember when we were like in North of Tigers playing versus uh, Mounties, there was always like this pre-game pre talk that, oh, the Mounties just, just you know, like they're the resties, but this kind of culture, that kind of culture, just guys <laughs> going the field, get the result, come out, don't get into arguments. And then for, for some reason, like, you know, um, uh, even though, like, you know, the organization was better in place in the Tigers, uh, the Mountains were, like, you know, sometimes getting results surprisingly. And, and when you look at it, it's just that assertiveness and that kind of natural element that was in the environment of that club was sometimes coming to their help, like with the, with the players I'm talking about, not the organization. Yeah, that's interesting. So you're talking about the that there's just inherent characteristics, inherent qualities that sort of within individuals and within clubs that then somehow on some days just combine to give something exceptional. And I guess that's always that little bit of, you know, I say the magic, the extra extra that, <laughs> that can be the difference, but that's an interesting point. All right there, guys. We'll can, be I, back can I just, uh, before you go, I just love to add something because give you a bit of a background, but at a club that I used to work at, I'll say it's North Shore Mariners um, before they got promoted to NPL one. Um, and the coach at the time, he was working wonders on it. Like he was recruiting players on a minimal budget. It was smaller than I'd probably say any other club, right? And what he would do, and I didn't speak to him directly about it, but he, what he would do is he would, he would build a core of experienced players. And then he would try to find the young players and try to sell them the idea of potentially getting to Central Coast Mariners. And in real, realistically, he did that. 
you know, you look at um, Gianni Stensis. He was at um, at uh, Northbridge, North Shore Mariners. Then he went to Central Coast. Now he's playing for New Zealand. Lewis Miller. He was um, dropped from the, uh, the Sydney FC League Academy. Went through the 18s in the same season, 20s in first grade. And then now he's playing for Central Coast Mariners. So he was able to find players who had the motivation to, to, to play first team football at a young age with a decent enough team. And eventually after I think four or five years of trying, they got promoted because he was able to keep the core good group of players, even though every year three or four of them are being asked to go to other clubs, being paid more money. That's really interesting because that is essentially that process. Yeah. Okay. The coach has a heavy part in that, but yeah, that is a, is players working out what they want, how they want to do it, where they want to do it and being able to find an environment that does that. And that's, that's that pre-selection. So yeah, I think that's a really neat little way to wrap that section up and and someone's like, well done, Ange. I appreciate that. Good stuff. All right. We'll be back for part three and the final little bit in not too long. Welcome back, guys. We're down for part three, the final part of this little conversation where we'll try and pull it all together, have another little anecdote, some top quality stories from there, um, which was nice. Really good to hear about how that plays out in two different environments as players. But now, I guess the last part to really think about, and look, not everyone in the game wants to get involved in the playing or the coaching side. Some of it is also... um, they want to help in the back, the back room of the, of the team. They want to be in, a, in the board level or in some of the support uh, capacities. Just to illustrate this, I want to share a little story. And, and I came across a, a, a write-up, a conversation with with a, an American guy who he his big thing is about connecting owners or potential owners with clubs, so board members, directors, and the like. And he, and, and he talks about a process where, and it's in the mold of, of, of the last um, three quarters of an hour's worth of conversation is he would pick clubs based on certain dimensions. And he would look at, say, how financially wealthy they were, but also their level of facility, facilities and then their success. And he would talk about success. And I have alluded to this, that he would talk about success that the quality of play they're producing, the profit that that player goes for or where that player goes to play, but then also the quality of their outputs of their academy. So for instance, in one such study, there was, he looked at a club in Uruguay and this was out of the bigger, this is beyond those two big clubs of um, Penny Royal and Independiente, I think it was. It was a smaller club in Montevideo and they were a club who had had a longstanding academy director and he was known to produce uh, high quality players and per number of players in the last, I think it was 20 years that had represented Uruguay. There was a, a, a number 20% or something of that sort had come through this environment. So then when they were, so then when clubs were looking um, at players who had gone over to Europe and, and then clubs that had generated certain success, they found that this was a common theme. So he started to look at the deeper level and that was all these factors that were beyond football. Now that in some respects was what we've just been talking about. And that highlights a deeper level of the game. So you can look at just the football aspects, the the surface level, but then 
you go and look into all these other structures that help develop the team. And this is where these ideas of complex theories, dynamic systems, game theory sorts to, sorts to, starts to come out and is another tool for, for, for selecting and generating methodology. Going to that level, do you think that is a way of assessing how to build and contribute to a club? Or do you think you just go for a club that's near you? What do you think about that? Yeah, <laughs> we'll I mean, I'll throw the rabbit hole here. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I've got, I'll give you two experiences what I've had, right? So I've had two experiences full-time employees as an administrator slash coach at two different clubs, right? So one of them was in, it was in Canberra. Um, it was my first one I ever took. I was 27 years old. That role was basically, I wrote the job description. I wrote the administrative side of what I needed to do to earn the money to be able to pay for my full-time coaching capacity as the head of women's football, right? Um, my, the biggest pull to that was the fact that I was able to influence and do whatever I wanted based on how I thought a club should be run yeah, in the women's side. Slate. Yeah, a clean so slate. It, yeah, it was a clean slate. So you look at someone like Ralph Ranick, where he used to love doing that at the uh, RB Leipzig. He was in uh, Salzburg. He created a club at Hoffenheim. He created a club from nothing to something. And it was, a for me personally, it was a project, right? So it was a full-time job. It was a project that I wanted to be part of. But, you know, it was also a club that I previously had in the first place. Because I helped create the Women's Premier League program the first year. Sure. So it was something that, it was a personal thing where I, it was a connection where I was there four years previously, but it was also the fact that I was able to really implement what I wanted to implement because as a young coach, you have all these ambitions and ideas. You go, I get to implement, I get to do it. I'm allowed to do it now and get paid full time to do it. You know, at another club where I was at in Sydney, I became a general manager. Um, and the reason why I went to that job, I didn't consider anything else, right? I should have considered where the club was at. Um, mm -hmm. I should have considered the resources that they were, um, you know, that they had, uh, they should have considered the people around it. I didn't do any of those three, but I found that out slowly and it slapped me in the face uh, after, you know, 18 months of the job. So if in that case, then thinking about it bigger and having a system around that, would you have looked at their track record of player development? Would you have looked for a key individual within that environment that made a difference to whatever the outcomes of that club were, would you have looked at their ability to maintain financial strength? Well, player continuity, coaching continuity, those sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, that's what I should have looked at. And that's where it fell apart for me because had I known about basically the issues that were bubbling on the surface for a few years, because I spent most of my job trying to bring the club back up to that same level it used to be at, Instead, the people above me were expecting us from here to there, from the middle level to the upper level. I couldn't reach and improve things until I, I got the club back up to where it should have been in the first place. So, you know what I mean? Like it's interesting. So what you're saying is there's quite a bit of stakeholder management that's yeah. going to go in that. So if you're looking at this at this meta level, it's also now measuring perception as well. Perception yeah. both within and external of the club. That's, that's, that's a really fascinating point. So, you know, if you're looking to be in a supportive role of a club, it's not simply going in and just with the, with the, with the high ambitions and high plans and, and a toolbox. It's, it's, a, it's a whole lot more than that, isn't it, Diarco? Yes, absolutely. I mean, look, it's, it's quite an interesting uh, area to look into. When, 
looking at it like within Australia region, say, you know, um, we have, it, it comes down to the issue of funding, funding, how much uh, there's funding in, in football in particular. And, and uh, that versus, um, I guess, uh, more of an elephant in the room kind of conversation, <laughs> more like the ethnic football as the backbone of the nation's football. But then why, why there can be investments in there? Because, you know, when I say funding, because we're talking about sustainability and sustainability comes down to uh, supporting coaches uh, in, in different levels, right? Now, uh, I, I reckon that, you know, um, uh, okay, on, on, the, on the community and uh, even in PL clubs, you know, um, uh, I guess sometimes if it's, uh, you know, uh, it's ethnic background community football club, uh, you can see that it's, it's got a lot of potential in terms of players, but then, but then, you know, in terms of the management, you got to make sure that, you know, it's all uh, willing to be coordinated and go like, you know, within under one, one uh, cohesive system. Mm. So, so they can, they can, they can grow up, but then you, you just see that, that that's lacking from the management of the club. And that's what we're talking about, the culture. So then, then how do you get a read on that though? So I, I agree with everything you've just said. Sure. If you're trying to select a club in which you want to contribute in a non-footballing sense, how do you get a read of all that? How do you make an assessment on those things that, you, that you've just spoken about? So, I mean, like this is, we're talking about, um, we're talking about the development of the game by developing coaches. So, so hypothetically, you're speaking about coaches that are on a get-go wanting to start a career or, mm. uh, you know, like obviously when you've got a, you, you, you built your CV, you've got options available, you're willing to take what it takes, travel around. But at the very beginning, obviously, you're lacking resources. You want to start from somewhere. And that's the story of many coaches. Um, sure. So hang on, bring this back to the support staff. of Exactly. So yeah. that's like the board members, those, are, those that ne necessarily have an appetite to coach or have the ability to play. And I agree. I mean, coach development is massive because that determines the quality of your players. But not all of us are able to contribute in that way. So if we want to be able to contribute to a club and be able to offer those opportunities, as you say, create those environments where those all those things are conducive and all those issues and avoid all those issues that you just mentioned, yes. how do you... How do you identify and select environments where you can change that, avoid yes. that as, as a support person to be able to then do the inverse of everything you just said, which is be able to create an environment that is supportive for coach development, that does provide pathways, that does allow players to develop, et cetera. Uh, when you think as a support person, as a, as a supporting coach or as a supporting... And as a support, like as a board member or a administrator or... And see, this is, the, this is the big issue, I think. You know, firstly, why this uh, whole topic is highly relevant is because of the, you know, even if you talk in an A-League level, it comes down to the same thing uh, where there's a gap between, the, between that high level and, and the lower level and that gap needs to be filled in. Mm -hmm. And sometimes... The argument is okay, but there's a lack of funding, and sometimes you say no, no, no. Okay, even if the funding is there, you can still see the club culture is different. The the the, the organizational culture is not there. So back yeah. to what you were asking me about the board board and uh, the directive decisions. So yeah, as a board member, how can you go in and identify those exact issues that you mentioned, yes. and then how can you? then be put yourself in a position where you can affect those that you can affect them in a positive way 
to assist the coach development, player development. So, if, so what I mean by that is, if if I was if I was someone who was not able to coach, not able to play, but I wanted to get involved in the game at an, at, a, at a management or an executive level, how do I identify an environment like that? Like the story we shared and 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 Angelo's insights, where you can pull out those those threads either the clean slate option or the threads of these clubs have success in these areas or i've got value that i can bring to the club and therefore create that change yeah well i mean like this is uh something that i guess like whether as a coach or as a board member you're always looking to one keyword and that's sustainability so mm-hmm. what what are the key contributors to sustainability sustainability of a club Let's say um, uh, part of it is the player existing player resources. Mm-hmm. Part of it is the region where the club is belong to and how much uh, ta- talent seeding do they have. Let's say, and then the other thing is like say for example how um, uh, what are the other uh, systematic uh, things that we do have processes that we do have in place. Let's say for example, um, uh, how, what's our coach development situation look like or how do we support our coaches let's say i would say especially uh, with the with the issue of like let's say uh, when we when we do talk about sustainability we do we do talk about coaches being able to commit to a season without worrying about you know um uh, uh, the financial side of the the things because that's that's a high commitment obviously like you know you, you spend a lot of hours on the training and the games so uh that's what i mean like uh, uh certain part of it is about the organization that you can bring into place and uh, organizational culture by bringing that sustainability and you can only do so much but in the end you've got to bring the fund into it and so let me reflect back to what you said i'll just hold you there so sure. you're saying that if you're going into an environment you want to look for sustainability that being they have the playing resources to achieve what they say they want to achieve yes. they have business processes or organizational processes that allow them to do what they say they want to do. Mm. They've also got the support to say that they can do what they need to do as a club. So they've got, they've got backing, they've got power, they've got, um, well, intangible resources. And then you're, you're saying that, that then they've also got the monetary financial means to meet what they want to say. So on that, how do you then go about identifying where your value add is to fit within all those things you just mentioned well i guess that's a huge challenge that you're facing because the, the environment well, that we're in, yeah exactly the environment that we are in at the moment is not necessarily offering that optimum level in, in many cases not in all the cases but in many cases i'm going to give you a case study of that without naming the club <laughs> uh, a good example of a good club with a good organization and we're talking about something that has been an example for other MPL clubs, could manage to bring coaches, could manage to bring uh, good players as a result of those coaches. The coaches were competent enough that they not could, they, they were not only um, did their coaching job quite well, but they also could recruit really good players. And by the end of it, uh, you know, the organization was in place, the, the club culture was fantastic, but then uh, the coach couldn't support himself or herself. And then in the end, they got cold feet and they had to just um, not only leave the club, but also just, just to stay away from the game, just to be able to make living. And, and this, is, this relates to the bigger picture highly because we're talking about 
um, NPL clubs where the next level would be A-League. And A-League is, you know, uh, you know, NPL clubs are basically uh, supporting the A-League clubs. And th this, is, this is a huge issue because the gap is uh, actually very considerable. And so, okay, well, it's, it's not just about developing coaches and players. It's about, um, you know, making sure that the, the potential motivation that's out there, we, we're not damaging it. Mm. Okay. So you're really talking about if you're going to add value, it's about identifying in, in where you can maximize potential, grow potential of a club, but also do it sustainably. I mean, that's that's a fair enough kind of argument. I think that's very that's intelligent way to look at it. And for yourself, Angelo? Yeah, look, for me, as a someone who's been dealing with board board members in the past at uh, numerous different clubs and actually being a committee member at one stage, uh, well, at two different stages, um, you know, I found a lot of people, they, they join a board and a committee because they feel as though they can provide something because they've got the skill set for mm -hmm. it. But the first thing they look for before they even consider nominating themselves or being nominated is the ambition. Does it match? You know, are they, are they joining a club that actually wants to change or they're joining a club that just wants to keep ticking along? Um, and what I found is the people who've got the skill set, like marketing, sponsorship, um, you know, just especially in the NPL club, it's, it's got to be the more commercial side of things exactly. because, you know, people who run a club are volunteers, right. Um, yeah. at the NPL level. So they need to be able to provide something that doesn't, it's not too onerous on them. Mm -hmm. Right. <clears throat> but if they provide the skill set that, that they think that the club can use and the club is willing to use them for, you know, I had someone in the board that was at a higher level at a, an IT company in marketing. Not yeah. once in my tenure there did he do anything to do with marketing. Mm. He never said anything about it. <clears throat> so sort of, I thought to myself, I need help to help to bring more players into this club, more trialists, more players into our academy. Yes. And yet I've not had a single word from this person who clearly has experience in it to be able to do it. So whether or not he felt that he should or could uh, contribute, it was, it was strange, but you know, I guess it depends on that person if whether or not they want to push and, you know, provide that that skill set to the club and to the people who need it. That's really interesting because equally the club yeah. should know what someone brings. So if someone inquires to be involved in that capacity, it's, it's, it's imperative the club has an understanding of that responsibility of the club to know that. But it's, 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 it's good that, you know, you've matched, you've identified two things that, you know, that does that person who want to be involved actually want to give what their expertise is like what is their objective what is their reason for being there their why but then also you're talking about ambition like does their ambition match where the club wants to go along with sustainability so what you're really generating is a is a checklist a list of yep. criteria and that's probably one thing that's come through this entire conversation be it as a player a coach or a board member you've got to have a clear idea of what it is that you want in whatever, in whatever club situation, role or capacity and be able to assess that in however you choose to do it, be it data, uh, qualitative type things, attitudes, environments, or, and be able to then ask the questions to be able to, to, to create, get that information to then be able to have a relationship to then be able to at least see that through or, or, or check out before, before you get yourself into a situation where, you're not going to, well, for lack of better words, not optimal, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I was going to actually on that uh, touch on uh, the people management side of it, like what uh, you and Andrew were talking about. You know, the, obviously, especially with the community club, the the largest side of it is the volunteering, and with the MPA club, okay, there's a there's a half half there's a volunteering side, and then there's the uh, proper paid uh, roles where uh, you know you're paying people based on their level of skill and knowledge. Now. The volunteer is pretty straightforward, like, you know, whether they're like, you know, uh, you know, uh, coaches or let's say, for example, other 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 stuffs involved in the club. You want to make sure of three things because you're not paying them. You want to make sure that, you know, they're uh, learning. You want to make sure that they are happy and uh, in the position that they're working at, you know, and also you want to make sure that, you know, they're, they're you know, you're not taking a toll out of them, obviously. So that's with the volunteers. And it's pretty straightforward. But then when it comes to paid, it, it's a completely different structure, different story. You really have to be clear about that. And you, that means you, you are exchanging the skills. So mm-hmm. uh, I guess it, it's a very, it's a no brainer. You're going to have to fund for it. You know? Yeah, look, I guess that, that <clears throat> right there is, you know, that's as a volunteer, you've got to make sure you're getting something from it for yourself as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's a very different expectation in a paid environment, isn't it? So mm-hmm you know, that's, there's a service that's been rendered and that service has to be delivered. Otherwise, there's an issue, isn't it? You're paying for something that you're not exactly. getting. Exactly. And, and on that, uh, uh, Gus, I have to tell you that, like, you know, we, we all know this, you know, it's all about demand and supply. And, and in, our, in our region, the demand is, the, the demand is unfortunately, uh, thankfully is growing, but unfortunately still is too small that, you know, even on the paid level, um, the areas that should be paid, uh, unfortunately, is like yeah. uh, is heavily relying on volunteers still, and, and that's dangerous, I think, because it can damage. My, my point out of all of this is that what you don't want is that uh, you unwantedly or unintentionally damaging a potential motivation that's yet to come mm. uh, and flourish as a talent, whether it's a coach or a player. I mean, yeah. in this case, we're mostly like coach and staff, you know. Well, I, I think out of this conversation, we've definitely opened a can of worms and we're not going to get them all back in the same hundred percent. This is well and truly down the rabbit hole and, you know, we're anywhere. We, this could go on um, for, for, for days, weeks. Yeah. And look, I think a big part of that is, is as we look to grow the game, both stakeholders inside and outside of the game need to become more objective about how they look at different aspects of the game and somehow reason the subjective elements of the game into a way that can be repeated, that can be delivered some sort of precision, some accuracy. And that's where the process come in. And by doing that, we build sustainability within the game. We enable to increase the overall wealth of the game, both the, the, the monetary side, but the other stuff as well, the cultural side, the development side, the product side. And I think if we can get into that space, and this is where the, the board members side of conversation helps is, you know, they help the supply and supply and demand is a very natural process. And as is evolution and growth of the game, that's again, a natural process. It just goes to show that it, that by systematically approaching something like this, we can, we can coherently deliberately grow the game, can't we? And I think that sort of thing can't be undervalued. So final thoughts from you guys. Yeah, hundred percent. And you go. <laughs> oh, look for me, like as a <clears throat> as a board member or a support staff looking for a club, it's got to be 
what fits in for them what really matches is the is do they feel comfortable as part of are they going to be working with people they want to work with or are yeah, they going to be butting heads because i mean i've been at clubs where i've seen people butting heads i haven't necessarily done it myself but i've seen it happen i've seen volunteer roles which could be financially viable to have it as a paid role for more expertise that doesn't happen you know i've seen clubs that don't use their platform to become more professional because my biggest thing about any npl club is that they should become more professional they should be running a little bit more like a business where they're going to help pay for the top side of things where they're not necessarily charging the young one the small ones a bit more it's it's developing business models where it becomes more well we provide service to this extra people that don't necessarily pay with us on the weekend we provide this extra service. You're spot on. And I think this yeah. goes for all levels of the game as well. And I think that this can be the case for grassroots clubs. Yes, it takes effort. It takes energy. It takes time to get it right at the start. But if you can do that up front, the dividend you get out of the other end is invaluable. It saves time. It saves overheads. And volunteers can run a process that's clearly defined that's easy because it's just put it in, get it out at the other end. And yeah, there'll be some always some growth and some modification mm. of that. But the, yeah, I think you're spot on it. There's something to be said for, for adopting it in that way. Do you have anything to add, Diaco? Yeah, no, I, I, look, I completely agree with you. And, uh, and I, think, I think that's the thing. Uh, I, I reckon it's a very relevant talk, to be honest. And I'm, I'm glad that we're having this conversation. I mean, uh, I know that like the aim of the overall Kick360 is mostly focusing on the um, elite level of football, but I think it's highly relevant because because you you trouble you troubleshooting basically as something that affects on even a higher level if you can if you can uh, really identify the root cause of some some of these issues I think it's highly worthwhile and I'm actually looking forward to future programs to see um, you know uh, people in that domain how do they think about these things like say for example even even like club managers or you know um, board members what would what how do they tackle uh, situations like that but i mean like look there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of positive things happening i think uh, within the region but then you you really got to be open to see the challenges i think i agree and i think there's something to be said to getting that hands-on experience from those in the trenches but there you go. That's another. That's an episode done. Episode one done. Signed and sealed. Thank you, Diaco. Thank you, Angelo, for coming on. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. No worries. A pleasure, guys. Look, for all the listeners out there, any thoughts, any feedback, feel free to uh, drop us a line. The details will be in the description. Love to hear your thoughts on the topic. And we'll be back in no time for another conversation, another topic on football, and see how we can help you development and coaching and, and that sort of space. So thank you very much, guys.